Thank you for tuning in again, Coffee and Convo listeners. It's your host, Liz Bullard. I hope this episode finds you well, wherever you may be. This episode, I am joined by Robert Goodrich, who is the co-founder and director, um, as well as a community advocate. Um, His organization is RACE, which stands for Radical Advocates for Cross-Cultural Education. And he explains a little bit in this episode about race and their mission. But he also helps me process the idea of defunding the police and what that would look like in the community um, if police were removed and what kind of society um, we can have. And while I don't know if defunding the police is the right answer or the wrong answer, if removing the police is right or wrong, I do know that something in the system needs to change. We see from the statistics and the continued videos of police brutality that our current system is somehow failed. And so I challenge you to think about um, in this episode what police reform would look like in your own community, what it would need to have the police function better. And for those of you who are in a community where you are completely happy with how your police function, See how you can help other communities get to that point where their police are being more effective um, and more um, working in tandem with the community. I think that, again, something needs to take place and what that is, I don't know. But I would certainly love to hear from different people and different communities about how their police are functioning and how it's being successful or not successful an attempt for us all to move forward in society with a um, a system that is beneficial for all of the members within that community. So again, thank you for tuning in. Um, I appreciate you taking the time out to listen. Please continue to share and post Coffee and Convos uh, wherever you may be, and be well. Let's jump on in. So again, thank you for um, joining me and and sitting for Coffee and Combos. Thank you. I appreciate the invite. It's always a pleasure to discuss important social issues with motivated Absolutely. folks. Absolutely. And so for those of you who are listening, I am joined by Robert Goodrich. Um, he is um, the one of the founders, correct, of Race Radical Advocates for Cross Cultural Education. Yes. Absolutely. And before you tell us a little bit about that, I'd like to welcome my guests to Coffee and Combos by asking them a coffee-related question, which is, do you prefer um, coffee or tea? I'm a coffee person. Awesome. Do you, How do you like it? Do you like it like cream, sugar, just black? How do you prefer your coffee? I drink it with a little bit of cream. Awesome. So I always find this interesting. Like there's uh, people that firmly believe in just their coffee. There's people who sort of firmly believe in tea. Some people do a little both. So I always like to start off with that one. But yeah, we, we actually, my partner and I have been drinking a micro lot brew from Bolivia that we're getting from a Massachusetts based company that practices in fair trade and um, works with family farmers in the Bolivian mountainsides. So it's a really fantastic 
brew that we're drinking now. That sounds fantastic. Like not only does it sound good, but it's also doing good in the community. I love it. But shifting gears a little bit, um, I really um grateful that you decided to sit and join this convo because um I, I've seen a lot about defunding the police. Um and I wanted to have you on to talk about that after you talk about um race and how it was founded because you guys do a lot as far as education around what the police is doing, how it's harmful in schools, um, and all things about racial equality. So I wanted to pause to have you talk about that. But um, I also wanted to, you know, hopefully through this episode, discuss the idea of does one bad apple spoil, spoil the bunch? Because um, we've seen that a lot. And that is a, a question that kind of um, frustrates me when we, it to me, sounds like we're tolerating um, police brutality. But we'll get into that. But first, um, please tell the listenership about um, your organization. So... Great lead-in, and RACE is an education advocacy organization, Mm -hmm. which was built by Dr. Uh, Arlene Garcia, myself, and Shante Campbell out of what we felt was the need to address disparate education outcomes for students of color here in Waterbury, and it was a passion project. Mm. Meaning that we're lifelong Waterbury residents, I was working for the public schools at the time, and both Shante and Dr. Garcia had family members attending schools in Waterbury, and we wanted to be able to highlight what the inequality was and provide solutions based on our professional experiences working in the field of education. And what this has developed into is an organization that not just practices advocacy, Mm -hmm. meaning that we work with families on school-based issues, like whether it's a IEP or issues with suspension or expulsion, but we also practice policy and legislative advocacy where we work with uh, political gatekeepers and decision makers at state agencies to uh, ensure that policies are made so that students who are traditionally uh, not centered in those decisions Mm -hmm. are. The third part of it is, is that we have developed a sense of community around organizing folks on other social issues, meaning police brutality and immigrant rights. So we partner with both types of organizations throughout the state of Connecticut. Now, what we think is probably the most important thing that we Mm -hmm. do is we work with educators, both instructional and non-instructional staff that we work with teachers and school counselors and administrators and superintendents to develop uh, policies and programs that drive culturally sustaining practices in schools up into the point where we're actually helping boards of education throughout the state of Connecticut develop resolutions to center teacher diversity in not just their words, but in funding decisions, in making hiring qualified human resources or human capital experts that have backgrounds in diversifying workforces. So you combine that into an organization that does 
a little bit of activism and agitation, but also is on the front lines of working with communities about very um, technical issues as well. So it's a lot of work. And it's, it is, um, it is. But I, I think it's very important what you mentioned that you um, not only educate, but you work with legislation because I think policy is very important. And that's how we bring about change, especially as we move gears and we talk about um, the next step for police departments. Um, so when, can you speak a little bit to when people hear defunding the police, I think they think of like abolishing or getting rid of police departments. Um, but what does that look like, especially when we consider here in Waterbury, what would that look like if we defunded the So what I think is really important is to have and to share common definitions. Mm. So I'm going to curse for a second. So is this a child's uh, nope. children environment or can I, can I curse? You can say whatever you want to say. <laughs> okay. So when we talk about defunding the police mm -hmm. and what, what's behind that in terms of a cultural saying is fuck the police. Mm -hmm. And so when we say either, we're not calling for chaos mm -hmm. and we're not calling for expansion of criminal behavior, mm -hmm. immoral acts. And most importantly, people need to understand that it's a call for political action to deal with organizations that were created in the late 20th century, meaning local police forces, mm -hmm. to be agencies of public safety, which they are not. Mm -hmm. And to clearly connect it, we have to know the history of policing in, here in America, mm -hmm. the, the colonized land of indigenous people. And there were folks who were used specifically to protect the property of explorers and adventurers, which led to the proliferation of colonialism. Mm -hmm. And primarily they were fashioned to protect the commodities of either human beings, slaves, mm -hmm. or, or the products and goods that they were stealing from indigenous lands. Mm -hmm. And it slowly developed into armed slave patrols when slavery, uh, two, three, 400 years ago, where there were armed slave patrols to make sure that slaves weren't escaping, mm -hmm. weren't being stolen. Then you have a full bureaucratization, you know, a bureaucratization of the police in the mid 1800s into the early uh, 19th century. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, the late 19th century, early 20th century, where you now have local jurisdictions actually funding and hiring, as opposed to private individuals, armed people to manage people's behavior and to police them. Mm -hmm. And then we slowly transition to a point in time in American history where you have the growth of um, social movements, mm -hmm. the suffrage movement, the growth of organized labor, which then gets a response to by the federal government to official crime fighting, where you have the development of the FBI and other federal agencies to support the, the people who want to suppress people's voices that are struggling and suffering. Mm -hmm. 
right? And then all of a sudden you see a small shift in the middle of the 20th century from this crime fighting and federal agencies influencing the way that policing is happening to a response to the civil rights movement where police mostly and still today are all white and mm-hmm. in, in many places are used to um, police neighborhoods that don't reflect their identity. Mm. And then they are used to protect this sort of bureaucracy, this sort of idea that there's respectable behavior and not respectable behavior and it cuts across cultural lines and identities. And shortly thereafter that, in the late 70s and early 80s, you see the rise of the prison industrial complex where you see incarceration rates skyrocket here in America. Mm. That creates a whole nother market, meaning people are in mass, thousands of people all across the country are now connected to prisons. Absolutely. Right. And then which drives the need for more police. Absolutely. And then we start seeing the development around policing immigration, Mm. okay? And the militarization of police forces, meaning two things. They have the items and vehicles and weapons of military as opposed to a public safety agency. And they also use the alternative methods like tasers and tear gas and uh, ultrasound uh, blasting devices that, can oh my. literally make people deaf. And what you see now is, is that police have become more violent. Mm-hmm. Now we have the ability to actually see it more frequently. And it's agitating people because they're able to identify with those experiences. And you also see sort of like this rec- uh, sort of recognition by white people mm-hmm that the institutions that they blindly supported for decades or hundreds of years to be a big problem. And now we get to the point now where there are solutions being developed all over the world or have previously been developed, and especially in societies that don't have police, where we say we need to defund, disarm, Mm -hmm. and divest from police. And people get scared because they've been conditioned to believe that the police are a good thing. And that is the way when we talk about bias, yeah. we always usually position it as something where someone's going to making a decision to hurt someone else. Mm-hmm. Well, it's bi-directional, meaning that people have a positive perspective on policing, which that sort of false legitimacy attracts them closer to police, thinking that they are agents of good, when in fact they are used to protect property commit violence on behalf of the state and private entities on people, suppress dissent, and ultimately put them in prison and, and lock them away. And in the, the most extreme cases, we see when people who are resistant to police are killed. And they've mm-hmm. more than likely have been white police killing black and brown people. And not just in accidental ways, but in very violent and public ways, which I'm happy to say has caused a public uprising. Absolutely. Absolutely. So 
So when we think about defunding, it's just not about stripping the money mm. away from the police. It's a process. There are small steps that need to take place that encourage, and this is really important part when we think about police abolition, that and incentivize community members to open their sort of unused creativity and imagination mm -hmm. to imagine a world in which police don't exist and that for 90% of 911 calls or non-violent calls that police show up to, we then are able to create an alternative system where we can then respond as community members to each other and share this radical love and forms of trust that have all been placed on police. When in fact, police commit violence, are well-resourced from our tax dollars, and often become barriers to liberation in our communities. So defunding the police as a starting point is scary for a lot of people because immediately folks will say, what, Liz? Oh, what about rapists and murderers? Yes. That is a huge question to ask. Well, one, rapists and murderers or rapes and murders are going to happen, regardless of police exist or not. Mm -hmm. Police don't deter that behavior from happening. But we're left in a system where the community doesn't have to address the fundamental issues that make people violent mm. and go ahead and act out and hurt other people. And it's usually these the small steps that lead to that extreme violence. And if, as a community, when we think about public safety, yeah. we need to share high levels of trust and love for each other. But right now, police stand in the middle. And they're an agency, an institution. They're incapable of developing love and trust with people because they're bound by specific duties. And amazingly so, they're given all this types of immunity that we as individuals do not have, meaning that they're given the freedom to act in a way that will cause people harm if, in fact, that they feel that they are going to be harmed. And that's called qualified immunity. Absolutely. So, so we think, like, when we think about defunding and divesting, there's another D word that happens to come out and that's decoupling. Mm. So we need to decouple the police from their legitimacy. And part of that is removing qualified immunity, meaning that they just can't say that they felt that they were going to be harmed. So they were going to take an action to keep themselves safe, which could be, which means anything. Absolutely. I was talking with someone about that um, in regards to um, the language that we use in regards to, to policing. You know, police, um, if they feel that their life is in danger, use um, equal force. But what we've been seeing is they've been using more equal force resulting in all this brutality. So I think that um, in even the history of what you uh, highlighted about the policing and how um, it was to protect and defend. And so that often, especially way back, was um, 
in much more stringent terms. And I think that culture is still there um, and what we're seeing um, today. No, it's very interesting. So there's a dichotomy that exists between reformist and transformationist. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people say, let's make small changes. Mm -hmm. Well, we also say make small changes, but make them deliberate yeah. to remove the power that police have. So we don't think that body cam cameras actually do much good. What they do is provide cover for police to, that would allow them to continue to act in the ways that they are now but just have an extra set of eyes on them. Mm. And body cameras also funnel more money to the police, mm. which is the exact opposite of a, di of a divestment. And more training mm -hmm. and de-escalation training. That is just a white lie. Mm. Meaning that if police are armed, and believe me, Police officers here in Connecticut are some of the least educated and least regulated profession that we have. So we have a group of uneducated folks with weapons that are going to get more training to interact with people that don't necessarily need what it is that they've been trained on. If, in fact, if police didn't exist we can then go ahead and take that money that was gonna be used for extra training or for body cameras and invest it in the people, meaning increased investments in education, social services like counselors and psychologists, community tribunals that deal with and help um, harmed parties remediate um, instances of either property violence or emotional harm and then we don't become tied to this judicial system, which has been putting people in prison at extreme levels for 40 years now. As you were talking, I was thinking about, um, as you were talking about the, the shift in funding and things like that, if, um, because the police departments, correct me if I'm wrong, get a lot of funding through government, whether like our tax dollars, whether state, local, federal. Um, but if police departments were more privatized, Right. Do you think that would aid in being more effective because their um, investment is tied to the quality of work? Yeah, I, I don't. I don't. I would disagree with that premise that we need to privatize police. And why I would disagree with that mm -hmm. is, is that we have forms of privatized police now. Mm hmm. So what's really important for us to understand is, is that when we go back to privatization, we go back 500 years when they were protecting and proliferating the most powerful people's motives and agendas. So one of the things that's interesting that is contained in privatizing police or the idea that privatizing police would help us is, is that we're, most reformists are striving to get more accountability from police departments mm -hmm. and police who commit violence. When in fact, 
the mechanisms in place now, like a civilian review board with subpoena power, mm-hmm. still takes months, years, or more to accommodate justice. I'm not exactly sure what a privatized police force would be held accountable for by the people and necessarily how it would be. You'd have to explain it a little bit more in detail. But as a general principle, I would say we don't need police at all. We need a public safety agency that is able to uh, mediate and mitigate harms that happen because of the close proximity of which people live and interact with on a daily basis. So it's almost like more social changes, more changes that deter people because crimes and data shows are often committed because, um, okay, I don't have my basic needs. So I got to go out there and steal or criminal activity so that I'm able to sustain my basic needs. Um, so it's almost like a whole social order rechange if I'm hearing you right. Well, it is, it's, it's a, it's more than a paradigm shift, Mm. right? Meaning that we're not just thinking about the way the world or the way that we interact with the world. We start a process whereby we, we live differently. Mm. And when we think about the concepts of mutual aid, which has become a growing, um, I would say theoretical, or theoretically it's been accepted at greater rates during this pandemic, but it's the idea that we're going to share with each other and we're going to share openly and we're not going to hold anything back. And we're not also going to be in the position to be shamed to ask for something. Mm. And that means uh, the power, the top down power dynamics, this vertical paradigm that policing works in and all the bureaucracies work in the same way. There's someone at the top that has the most power and that person or group of people disperse it amongst their friends or people that think like them. Mm-hmm. Where in fact, if we have a horizontal community mm-hmm. and everyone has equal amounts of power and resources, then we have an opportunity and access to sharing love, respect, trust with each other, where we don't have that now. And some people will say, well, that sounds a lot like communism and socialism. Yeah. And it's, actually, it's actually not, because we're not saying we need to change the system of the economy. And I'm not a shamed communist or socialist. I actually believe in the fundamentals mm-hmm. of those political and cultural beliefs. But I also think that Um, we don't need to shift the way our economy works at this point in time. If in fact, we're still going to have all of the uh, bureaucratic agencies that are responsible and systems responsible for committing violence on people. So it just becomes another way for people to take advantage of the power that they have and to commit violence under the guise of protecting what they have or improving what they have. In many cases, that's in contradiction to what may be good for the next person. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, 
would love to say that I had all the answers, but I do know that something needs to change. You know, the current and the current way things are um, have been harmful to people time and time again. And so um, I know the concept, the thought of defunding the police may sound scary to a lot of people. It does seem scary to me, like getting rid of the police, you know, um, because you do have law enforcement out there that are doing what they're supposed to do. Um, but there, ha I think that we can argue the point that there is something within the structure and the function of the agency that is faulty, especially when we continue to see the high rates and the disparities um, that is caused by the same agency that is supposed to protect um, everyone. Yeah, I mean, when you say everyone, that is a the difference between in my opinion, of what multi, your, a Eurocentric multiculturalism calls for versus culturally sustaining or responsive ways that a state or local agency or group of people can interact mm -hmm. with each other. So I think that one, one of the many challenges to getting people to accept what defunding, divesting, and disarming the police means is getting them to understand that we're all going to be safer, healthier, and happier once that happens. Mm. And shifting a little bit, another concept that I struggle with um, greatly is this concept of um, this one bad apple concept that we, we talk about when we talk, when I hear people talk about the police. Um, because to me, when I hear that is we should excuse poor behavior because it's not everyone. And for me, I'm like, listen, I've had many of apples, right? When it starts to brown, I cut that piece off and I save the rest of the apple. So I, I don't understand why we, there's this concept of um, not a, a t addressing and attacking police brutality at the root, whether that's at the union level, that's when someone has committed one or two offenses. Um, what is your idea and your thought process when you hear people say that about this one bad apple? So I'll couple that with there are good people that become cops, but there's no such thing as a good cop. I like how you said that. So what happens is that culture, a loving, forgiving, one that's filled with trust and fairness and justice should not be coupled with agency that is armed, trained in military tactics and isn't able to be held accountable no matter what solutions are being put in place. So let's get rid of all the apples because they, in this instance they are the allergens and irritants of a safe, healthy, loving society. And to further dive into that analogy, that sort of 
two-minute section of Chris Rock's uh, stand-up act is very true. So the amount of police misconduct, if it was applied to many other agencies or jobs or professions, would not be given the same opportunity to continue to act in the same way. Agreed. Because because it's about life and death. Mm. If you can't fly a plane safely and you have a plane full of 400 people and you kill all 400 people, you shouldn't be allowed to fly again. <laughs> that, that is not happening. Let me tell you. <laughs> no, but this is... You were exactly the, right, but we seem to allow that when it, it is it's law enforcement. And that's why I like how you had said um, good people become officers. They feel like we talk about law enforcement as if they no longer become uh, people, but they are still people doing a profession. And so, like you mentioned, like in no other profession would we allow someone to continue to cause harm repeatedly, um, and then just kind of like, okay, just you know, you keep getting paid, you keep going back to work. So, well, it, it's amazing, right? So, in many instances, the most brutal cops are promoted mm -hmm. because the only way that they can successfully do their job, based on the standards of policing here in America, is to be brutal and to be aggressive and to ignore trust, love, and respect in pursuit of this malformed piece of justice dictated by the court system. So there is no analogy for me around bad apples. It requires that we get rid of them all and we stop growing them. Mm -hmm. And we, we, we no longer as a society need to have cops because they are, are the irritants and barriers to the communities that suffer the most now. We don't see people in the West End of Waterbury getting pulled over at the same rates of people on Walnut or Grove. We also don't see the interesting part of Waterbury policing is, is that, yes, more white people are in Waterbury than people of mm -hmm. color. That's because Waterbury still has a large number of white people that live here. Mm -hmm. But a lot of the arrests that happen are of white people coming into this city to, to buy drugs or to steal things. But what we don't see is a transition of policing of where they live and where they come from. And it's very ironic to see the amount of traffic stops that happen here in Waterbury. Mm -hmm. And that is really clear, is that people of color, especially at night, are two to three more times to have their vehicle searched and almost five or six times more likely to be arrested off of a traffic stop than are white people, despite the fact that there's more white people doing crime in concentrated parts of Waterbury than there are people of color. Mm. That's what the data shows us. But the strategies and tactics, and this is why policing has to be mm -hmm. abolished. The strategies and tactics that are used by the Waterbury Police Department dictate that police be placed in communities of color. Mm. And it is a contradiction 
when we think about protecting and serving, that they're there to investigate and arrest. And that, in essence, is the key part of transforming our culture and our community is that we know that police can't move beyond this investigate and arrest, and in many cases, use physical violence to complete those things, or at the worst, emotional violence and psychological violence in their investigatory tactics. Mm-hmm. And I can share with you um, one of the more prominent people here in Waterbury. Well, actually, she lives in Wolcott now, our congresswoman. Mm-hmm a lawsuit where her husband was accused of being very brutal as a detective and the city settled the case and it's horrifying what he's accused of doing horrifying and he's been promoted multiple times so is so we're the other police officers noted in this lawsuit. And I think that is a trend that needs to stop. Um, And again, George Floyd being one of the more notable cases because of the brutality of it and seeing that, you know, the officers that were with him in the multiple cases um, that they had, it is discouraging to see that um, that goes on and that is a reality. And I think prior to all these um, investigations, it was like it wasn't a reality and that this wasn't really happening because I think, we, you know, we look at our own jobs and our things and there's no way that we can have these repeat instances and continue to, to work. So it's just very um, discouraging, at least for me to hear that this is all too common. Yes, and there's no way around it. The most brutal cops are promoted. The most brutal cops are giving the space and essentially the permission to act in a way that is unregulated and they're never held accountable. So imagine a world where we didn't have to worry about rogue police. Imagine where we didn't have to worry that a son or a daughter was going to be pulled over and they, a rogue actor, meaning a police officer, was going to take out his bad day on someone. And, and this doesn't happen to white people at the intensity and the violence that it happens to black and brown people. And as a white man, this has to be front and center. So last night when the white supremacist biker gang showed up to the rally in Waterbury, mm-hmm really important to be in front and to directly address the their act of political violence and be there to make sure that they weren't able to commit violence on any of the protesters or rally attendees. But Waterbury is a place that sort of embraces that outlaw mentality where they don't have to be observed, regulated, and have the support of the police and the mayor so that they can go there and agitate and intimidate people that were there, peacefully assembled, to address social issues. And it's 
very, very concerning. And to piggyback off of that and then uh, bring us to a close is, I think one thing we need to stop doing is um, when we hear about things that the police have done, Yes, again, we know that there are cops and officers that do this profession and they are professional and they're trying to hold their teammates accountable and they're, they're doing the right thing. But I feel that we need to stop. Um, and we saw this when there was a shooting a while back in Waterbury. I want to say it was on Martin Luther King Day. And people were just like, hey, like, let's get some answers. And there was this immediate, we need to stand the officer. And it's like, yeah, we, we'll do that if it, it's justified and we're calling for answers. That's all people were asking for. But there seemed to be this immediate outrage that people were even asking for answers. And I think that as we move forward to change, we need to stop being outraged when people just want answers. They're not call, calling for violence or anything like that. They're just calling for answers. But um, any last words, Mr. Goodrich? No, I, I, I get a sense that there's something that is growing in Waterbury. Mm -hmm. The amount of courageous and um, organized acts against systems and individuals uh, perpetuating violence and systemic oppression is growing, and that. Right now in Waterbury, there this is the greatest opportunity to organize around social issues, and that I think folks should pay close attention to those who are supporting dissent and those who are trying to suppress it, Absolutely. and continue to make choices to align themselves with the people who are being brave and courageous, because those are the people, especially the young folks, that are going to lead Waterbury into the future, into uh, a place of safety, security, and culturally sustaining environments in all of our neighborhoods. Absolutely, because, so. you know, we all just want to have the same things. We all just want to live, be safe, and enjoy life. So I, I thank you for coming and talking uh, about this issue. Uh, I think it's a difficult issue as people have to have a vulnerability to talk about what's right and what's wrong and, and challenge the, those social um, norms of what's right and what's wrong. So thank you for, for having this conversation. Great. I, I, I'm very happy to join you and look forward to doing it again. Absolutely. Soon. And the last part of um, Coffee and Convos, I like to leave everyone with what are three things that you're putting in your cup to get you through the the day. So for me, to get me through this day, I'm going to put in strength, um, because I don't think this is um, an issue of uh, racism and things that are, it's going to be gone tomorrow. I think that we have to be ready to be in this for the long haul and really challenge systems. So I need strength to, to keep pursuing wisdom to see what is right and what is fair. Um, and patience, because again, it's going to take um, hopefully not another 10, 15 years, but as we dismantle things, you know, we want them to be done correctly. So that requires um, a patient and wise hand. So strength, wisdom, and patience is what, is what I need to get through today. Um, what about you? It's critical reflection, mm -hmm. reading, and physical activity. Mm -hmm. All right. Thank you, Liz. Thank you. Have a great day and be safe.